Good everyone, I'm Alex. <laughs> and apparently there's a bit... No, no. Uh, I'm going to be doing the Bible reading, so it's in your booklets. Revelation 11, if you want to turn to it in your Bibles. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the the kingdom of the world has come, become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and who will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Keep that passage open in front of you. Um, If you're here at public meeting for the first time, welcome to the Christian Union. You've come at a very interesting day. Um, That passage is incredibly strange. Uh, And if you can handle that, then I think you can handle anything Christianity will throw at you. Uh, So you're more than welcome. Uh, Let's dive straight in. It might have escaped your notice, uh, but tomorrow will be the second year anniversary of a church bombing in Sri Lanka. Uh, It was Easter Sunday and a man walked into Zion Church on the east coast of Sri Lanka and he was wearing a very large backpack, uh, which we now know to be a bomb. 
and he blew himself up in the churchyard, killing 31 people. Uh, Many of them were children who'd just come out of the Sunday school building next door. And one of the women who attends the church who survived the attack is a lady called Michelle. And, And as she reflects on what happened, she said one of the hardest things was seeing the bodies on the stretchers. These aren't random strangers. These isn't a computer game. These are people that she knew, her brothers and sisters in Christ. And you want to know the remarkable thing. She goes on to say this. There is beauty in this darkness. Out of the 83 families who were affected by the blast, not one has stopped coming to church. And I just have one question today. How? How is that possible? That having lost loved ones and been the victims of such a violent attack of persecution, they would not only continue in their faith, but continue to meet publicly and declare that faith, the faith that got so many of them killed. That's the question that I have. Now, that question might feel like a bit of a distant question for you. I mean, the CU had its Easter services two weeks ago, and our greatest stress was locating volunteers. It wasn't locating bombs. In fact, it didn't even cross our mind to think that that might be an issue. And yet what I want to suggest to you today is that however distant that question seems, you need the answer. You may never be in fear for your life as a Christian, But as our society turns more and more against its Christian heritage, the likelihood that you will be mistreated for claiming to be a Christian will only increase. Uh, And that's especially true if you're the sort of Christian um, who is seeking to obey God and actually openly declare the fact that you believe the gospel uh, and that others should too to those around you. And so what you need to know is how will you stand in this world even after the bomb levels the building? Now, this might surprise you, but the best place to find an answer to that question, that deep and gutting question, is Revelation. Uh, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And the reason it's the place to find that answer is because of what Revelation is. Now, last week, uh, we were reminded uh, that uh, Revelation is a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul to seven persecuted churches in the province of Asia. Uh, But from chapter 4 in that letter, it takes the form of prophecy. Uh, particularly a type of prophecy called apocalyptic. Uh, And the way it works is that it uses a series of wild and larger-than-life images to kind of lift us out of our mundane human experience, and it casts our experience across the backdrop of ultimate reality. And so when John in chapter 4 is taken up into heaven, he actually sees an entirely new perspective on his reality. He doesn't see random suffering of Christians Uh, In fact, he sees that it's not random suffering. What he sees is that there is a God on the throne in heaven. Christ Jesus is reigning. And all of the random suffering that Christians are experiencing is not random. It's not a sign of their failure. It's not a sign of God's absence. But in fact, it is all part of a calculated and controlled plan of God to bring salvation to his people and judgment to his enemies. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to continue in the book of Revelation, look at chapters 10 and 11, and we're going to see what it tells us about ultimate reality and how it helps us continue to witness to Jesus like our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka. 
but to do that, first of all, we need to locate the chapters in the book. Uh, every time you dip into Revelation, you've got to work out how it all connects. Uh, so let's talk about how we figure out where chapters 10 and 11 are. Uh, most people approach Revelation chronologically. Okay? So what that means is we kind of think that the events of chapter 10 will follow after the events of chapter 9. Uh, and it all kind of strings into one long, unending stretch of history. Uh, But if you remember, like uh, Ben showed us last week, Revelation doesn't describe a continuous chain of events in history. What it describes is one period of time, the time that the Bible calls the last days. And it's the period of history between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And what Revelation does is it goes over and over the same ground again with different images, different pictures. uh, But it's fundamentally talking about the same situation. Uh, And so it's sort of like a colour printer and how it makes an image. Now, you may have seen something like this. Um, Ben put one up last week. Um, I made one especially for you. Um, (laughs) Have a look at those pictures. Um, You see the four of them, there's your four colours. And you can look at any one of those and you can tell me what the picture is. Some are easier than others. So yellow, holy Ben, he's a bit hard to see. Um, interestingly, red, angry Ben is the clearest. Um, so let the reader understand. But, but, but each of them highlights a particular aspect of the final true picture. And when you put it together, you get the latest in Christian fashion. <laughs> and that's what's happening in Revelation. When we come across the seven seals or the seven trumpets or the seven bowls, each one of them is a new layer, a new perspective on the last days, the days that we are currently living in. And so last year, we looked at the six seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That was chapter six and seven. And when we looked at those, we were looking at the last days from the perspective of the church and the tribulations that it would experience. But this semester, we're looking at the seven trumpets, chapters 8 to 11. And we're also seeing the last days. But this time, we're seeing it from the perspective of what God is doing against those who persecute his church. So that's the perspective. And we know that because of chapter 6, verse 10. Back in Revelation 6, 10, the Christians are being killed and they cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth, and avenge our blood. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, if you've got a Bible in front of you, you can actually look at this. Uh, An angel takes those prayers in verse 3 and he puts them in a burning censer and he hurls it down on the inhabitants of the earth, which is Revelation's way of referring to people who don't follow Jesus. And those prayers fall on the people of earth in judgment. And so this section that we're in, chapters 8 through 11, we're doing 10 and 11 today, frames for us this next layer or this next part of the picture of Revelation. Now, what's particularly um, important for us to understand when we get to chapter 10 uh, is that we kind of have a bit of a, a, a pause. So somebody hits the pause button. We've kind of done the first six trumpets in chapters 8 and chapters 9. And then we kind of have this moment where we just kind of rest and we step back and we look at things from yet another perspective. It's still thinking about the persecution of the church, uh, but it's sort of like a, almost like a layer within a layer. Uh, it's looking at that from yet another different perspective. And there's a bunch of reasons that I think that. Uh, but if you look at the end of chapter 10, uh, the final verse, verse 11, you'll see that John is told to prophesy again 
about many peoples, nations, languages and kings. And and that makes me think that what's happening here in chapter 10 and then by extension chapter 11, at least to verse 14, is that we are going over the same territory that we just saw in chapters 8 and 9. This is still God's judgment against those who persecute his church. And that's the thing that we need to have in our head as we enter into those chapters. So we've located the passage. You're with me so far? Good. All right. Let's hit chapter 10. This is John's prophecy against the nations introduced. Now, we're not going to spend much time here. I want to get to the fun, exciting images in chapter 11. Uh, But the key to the whole story is, if you look there, verses 1 and 2, a mighty angel comes down from heaven and he's holding a scroll in his hand. And in verse 8, John is told to go and take the scroll from the angel, which he does. And then in verse 9, we see this. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it, and it'll turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, and when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings." Now, if you know your Bible, you will know that in Ezekiel chapter 3 in the Old Testament, something almost exactly the same happens there as well. God commissions a prophet, his name's Ezekiel, and he's given a scroll to eat, and it tastes as sweet as honey, but it's bitter in his mouth. What's the scroll? Well, we find out that the scroll is the scroll of God's judgment. It's the things that he is saying to his people to call them to repent from their sin. And what we have here is the same thing. John is the commissioned prophet of God, and he is seeing a vision of what will come to pass, what is happening even now in our world. And he is told to take the scroll, and like Ezekiel, he's to eat it, he's to ingest the words of God so that he can then speak them out again. And we're told in the last verse who he will speak to. He must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And if you know your biblical categories, what that's telling us is these are the people who are not God's people, the people who aren't following the Lord Jesus. And John is told, I want you to prophesy about them. So that is what the prophecy is about. When we get to chapter 11, which is going to be the substance and the longest period of time we spend, we actually see what is the content of that prophecy. So let's skip to chapter 11. Uh, This is John's prophecy against the nations And this time it's not just described, but delivered. Now have a look there in front of you and skim your eyes down some of those things. Because when we get to chapter 11, things get a little bit crazy, don't they? Uh, We have measuring rods, we have temples, we have two fire-breathing witnesses, we have an olive tree or two, we've got some plagues, we've got a beast coming up from the abyss. And this thing is so overloaded with symbolism and imagery that it's really easy to kind of start thinking that a chapter like this is virtually impenetrable. We might as well just kind of go off to something a bit more easier, like one of the Gospels. But but what I want to suggest to you um, is that you guys, out of all of the generations in all of the world history... You are the best equipped to understand this chapter and Revelation more generally because you intuitively understand how apocalyptic literature works. And to my shame, this is the reality, it's because you have memes. You speak in images and so too does Revelation. Uh, Let me demonstrate it to you. If I show you this, you know exactly what it means, don't you? Revelation, this is my translation. Tell me if I'm wrong because I know like I'm approaching boomer age, right? (laughs) 
This is this is saying, if I'm right, revelation is hard, and anyone who thinks it's easy is kidding themselves. And just as crucially, you not only know what it means just by glancing at it, but you also know what it doesn't mean. It has nothing to do with Lord of the Rings. Boromir is not publishing a commentary on Revelation later on this year. The beast is not Sauron. You get this. Show it to your grandmother, and it's a little less likely. And so if you understand the concept of memes, then you'll understand the concept of Revelation. The problem is that we just don't know what they are. And so we need to turn to the Old Testament. And so what happens is that when we get to a chapter like this, we really need to start digging deep into what God has already shown us in other parts of the Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through all of the images that are in chapter 11. But when I say all, I'm going to choose three main ones. Uh, And we're going to work out what they are and try and stitch together a picture and a meaning that we can just instantly glance at and go, I get it. And hopefully we won't laugh, but we'll actually take it seriously. Uh, So with that in mind, let's have a look at some of the memes in chapter 11. I don't know whether I should be happy or sad that Tom Grice is here to enjoy this one. So um, let's have a look at chapter 11, verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. All right, first me measuring the temple. What does this mean? Well, if you know the book of Ezekiel, Chapters 40 to 48, what's Ezekiel privy to? He sees an angel come down from heaven, and then that angel meticulously measures the temple of God for eight whole chapters. It's like, whoa, God, surely you've got some better things to say. Why did he take that long to say it? It must have been important. Well, the reason that he does that is because he is outlining to the people of Israel his perfect plan for his future temple and how he will dwell with his people forever. It's a promise of preservation and it's a promise of presence. Now, what is the temple here that John is measuring? Well, some people take it literally, but given that Jesus does away with the temple and the physical temple is actually destroyed in judgment by God, I think there's another symbol here. It's not literal. Where else do we see the temple of God pop up in the scriptures? Well, we see it throughout the New Testament describing the people of God, don't we? And so what we have here is a picture of God measuring his people. Why? Because he is declaring that he will keep them safe. But keep reading and notice what isn't measured. Have a look there at verse 2. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And so God is measuring out his people, declaring his intention to be with them and to protect them. And yet somehow he is allowing some portion or part of them to be susceptible to persecution which is the trampling of the Gentiles. And so I don't think what this means is that some parts of the church will never suffer and only some parts of the church will. Because of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it says that everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a promise for you. And so what I think John is seeing here is not that there are some parts of the church that will be trampled, but he's seeing the church as a whole spiritually protected but they are left open to the persecution of those around them. So that's our first meme, the measuring of the temple. Second meme, the 42 months and the 1,260 days. We've already seen there in verse 2 that the Gentiles will trample the holy city for 42 months. Uh, A little bit later on, we'll see another number. We'll get to that in a second. Now, I've got to remember this is Revelation, and that means that the numbers are usually not literal. So why 42? 
Well, again, if you know your Old Testament memes, you'll start to think Daniel. Why? Because in Daniel, he prophesies about a great period of tribulation that God's people will experience. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, he describes the length of that period. It's a time, times, and half a time. And if you put that into years, you have a year, two years, and half a year, three and a half years, or 42 months. Whoa, mathematics, <laughs> right? You don't have to put too much stock in the literal meaning. It's used as a symbol. Uh, and, and if you want to kind of apply this out a bit more, it might interest you to know that from, uh, it takes Israel exactly 42 years from the point that they are redeemed from Egypt, think the cross, to the point where they enter the promised land, think Jesus' return. Uh, and so this number is a symbol for the period of length of the last days, that period between Jesus' first and second coming. Now, I want you to notice the parallel there in verse 3. God says, I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Um, Do the maths. Divide that number by 30, which is your standard month. What do you get? 42 months. So these aren't two distinct time periods. This is the same time period, not one after the other. And so what this is telling us is that at the same time Christians are being trampled, God's two witnesses will be prophesying. Okay, So he's measuring the church, they're being trampled, two things are happening, there's trampling, there's prophesying. Third meme, the two witnesses. And this is the big question for us and the one we kind of go, oh, how are we going to deal with this one? Because I think generally speaking, we take this at face value, right? And we assume that it's literal and that at some point in the future, just before Jesus returns, God will raise up two witnesses or fantastic prophets like John Piper and Tim Keller and and they'll do their thing. And then one day they'll start breathing literal fire um, and we'll see them all on YouTube. And then that's not what's happening here. Okay, Who are they? Well, I want to lay down my cards early and I want to suggest that it's not specific individuals, but it's the church of God as a whole. Uh, Why do I think that? A whole bunch of reasons. Let me just show you one. Um, Have a look up here on the screen. The first one is a verse from our passage today, verse 7, chapter 11. Now, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, literally make war against them and will overpower them and kill them. Uh, Two chapters later, chapter 13, verse 7 Uh, It says this, the beast, so the same guy, will be given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And you see this parallel in a number of places in Revelation and also in the Old Testament. Uh, And all that to say that I think what's happening here is that in both these passages, uh, whether it's the two witnesses or God's holy people, the beast who, by the way, isn't like an actual beast, but is just representative of the kingdom of the world, not a political entity, it's not Hitler, uh, but rebellious humanity set up against God and his king, that the beast is waging war on these people and will be doing so for that whole period of the last days. And because Revelation rinses and repeats, I think what we're just seeing here is another iteration of the people of the world and the people of God clashing and coming head to head. Quick question, why then are there two witnesses? That seems a bit strange to me. Uh, Well, if you go through the scriptures, one of the recurring legal principles, here's some of you, uh, some information for you JD guys. Um, One of the recurring legal principles is that no case will be taken seriously without two or three witnesses. And so as the church proclaims their testimony to the Lord Jesus, prophesies about him to the world, the world is left with no excuse. They are condemned on the testimony 
of two or three witnesses. And then you kind of stop and think about that. That that might surprise some of you. Because usually when we think of evangelism, we kind of think of it as only having like a, a solely positive impact. You know, people are perishing, we share the gospel, people are saved. But what John is revealing here is that evangelism is also the means by which God punishes unbelievers, not just the means by which he saves his elect. What do I mean by that? Have a look there at verse 10. The testimony of the church will torment the world. And I think that's what uh, verses 5 and 6 are getting at. Fire that comes out of their mouths and destroys is a picture of judgment. Shutting up the rain is what Elijah does to King Ahab because of his sin. And incidentally, how long does that happen for? Three and a half years. Turning the water to blood and the sending of the plagues was what Moses did to Pharaoh when he didn't listen to God. And so I think what happens is that as we step back and look at the memescape of Revelation chapter 11, what we actually see is a very clear picture. John is describing the dynamic between God's people and the nations in the last days. And while the world tramples down on the church, the church will witness to the gospel of Jesus and that will torment the world. And so what we see here is a clash of kingdoms, a battle that should frame our understanding of reality, even here in sunny Perth. And it's a battle between those who live in light of the truth of Jesus, who's on the throne and reigns over all of creation, and those who don't believe it and don't want to listen to it. And so the encouragement that it gives us is to God's people to continually and faithfully witness to the world of that reality. And the reason that we are encouraged to do that is because the outcome of that battle has already been determined, which is what Revelation reveals to us. And that brings us to our final point there on your outline, the comfort of John's prophecy and the question that I asked at the beginning. I asked how. How is it that Christians continue to witness to the gospel even as they are trampled to death by those who don't believe it? And I want to suggest that there are two things. First of all, it's because we are promised that Christ's enemies will be judged. And this is actually the main point, if you remember, of chapters 8 to 11. Uh, But if you're anything like me, you can't help but feel a little uncomfortable at that idea, yeah? The idea of being comforted by the judgment of others... Um, it's just, it, it doesn't feel natural or right. But, but I think if you stepped back and you looked at the experience of the church globally, I think that that idea would become a little bit more plausible than it might seem here at the UWA campus. Uh, here's a website that you guys need to know about uh, and that you need to spend some time on, um, ideally when you're procrastinating from your mid-sems and other assignments. Uh, it's called opendoors.org.au. And it tracks the persecution of the church across the globe. Now, you'll notice that Australia there is in grey. That means uh, doesn't mean that there isn't persecution in those sorts of countries, but it's just not in the top 50. Um, I want to take you to Nigeria, uh, which is this one up here. Uh, It's number nine on the list uh, on the Open Doors website. Uh, And this is what it says. I'm just going to... Oh, wow, the highlights blocked the words. All right, cool. Well, that's okay. Let me read them out to you. This is what it tells us about what's happening in Nigeria today. More Christians are killed for their faith in Nigeria than in any other country. Men and boys are particularly vulnerable to being killed and widowed women and their children have little protection. Many Christian girls are being abducted or forced to marry into these groups. I'll let you read between the lines as to what that implies. 
And around the country, believers are driven from their homes and Christian families rarely receive justice. I just want you to take a moment to kind of think about what living in that reality would look like. And then can you imagine what this sort of passage would mean to those Christians who live in that kind of hell? When somebody abducts your daughter or kills your son, this is the only promise that will keep you going, isn't it? That one day, someday, those people will be held to account for the way that they have treated Christ and his messengers. That one day the wrongs will be put to right. And I think that's the first thing that this passage does to enable us to continue to testify to the Lord Jesus. We know that one day it will be put right. But it's more than just that, isn't it? Because second, we are not only promised judgment on those who persecute us, we are promised that Christ's church will be vindicated. Persecution, our experience, is not the end of the story because Christ will return not just to judge his enemies but to reward his church for their faithful testimony to him. And you actually see this in verse 15 of chapter 11, uh, the chapter where the seventh trumpet finally sounds. Uh, The interlude is over, final judgment has come, uh, and it's declared there in in verse 15 that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. I want you to notice what's happening there. Two kingdoms, and yet it is Christ's kingdom that prevails. As we keep reading in verse 16, you see the elders worship God. And then in verse 17, they say, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And the revelation of this ultimate reality is the thing that compels us to consistent and faithful witness. It's what gives us the courage to speak up in our chutes, the courage to explain why we go to church to our unbelieving family, the courage to just get off your butt and invite your friend to read Mark Uncover with you. You will risk things as a Christian and you will suffer for it. Because notice what this passage doesn't promise you. It doesn't promise you a scar-free experience of Christianity. If you kind of zoom back up there uh, in verse 7 of chapter 11, the beast wages war on the witnesses and doesn't just hurt them, but he overpowers them and kills them, takes their bodies, leaves them in the public square, denies them burial for all the peoples and tribes and languages and nations to see. And the horrifying thing is in verse 10, the inhabitants of the earth, remember those who don't follow Jesus, It says there they will gloat over them. Look at the end of the verse there. Why do they do that? It's because the two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. And I would add for the sake of clarity by preaching the gospel. So I want to say to you as a Christian, here's Matt's pro tip for avoiding persecution. Don't tell anyone you're a Christian. Don't share the gospel. Keep your mouth closed. But to do that is to silence the message. And that's the very thing that the people of the earth are trying to do. So what does God promise? Well, he doesn't promise that we will be unharmed, but he promises vindication. 
He takes the two witnesses, and you see this in verse 11 and onwards, after three and a half days, a very short time of victory for the enemies of Christ. And he takes them and he raises them to life again, and they are taken up into heaven as the city of God collapses on those who are left behind, the enemies of Christ, the ones who killed them, and God's judgment finally falls down. And I want you to notice the pattern there. Just like the Lord Jesus, who, was, who suffered and was killed for his message and his testimony to the truth of God, we will be suffering and we will be killed for our testimony to the message and truth of God. But just like the Lord Jesus who died and was then raised again in vindication by God, we too will be raised as Jesus will be raised. And that's the answer to our how. How is it that the Christians of Sri Lanka... The Christians of Nigeria, the Christians of Perth, continue to witness to the gospel even as we are trampled. And the answer is because Revelation has drawn back the curtain on reality. And we see Christ is in heaven, sitting on his throne. And though the nations and the peoples declare open rebellion against Christ and his people, and for a time they seem like they have the upper hand, we know that one day soon Christ will return. And the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord. And Christ's enemies will be judged. And Christ's church will be vindicated. And all we who have faithfully witnessed will finally have peace. Let's pray. Father, we look on this image, uh, this picture that you paint for us in Revelation 11, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying for those who will face your judgment one day, who refuse to accept your rule. And it's terrifying for us who face the prospect of the world who not only hates you, but hates his messengers. And so, Father, I pray that this passage will do what it's supposed to do in our hearts and comfort us and encourage us to steadfastness, that we will faithfully and consistently testify to the Lord Jesus, the salvation that he brings, the forgiveness that he gives, the mercy that he extends to all who come to him and accept his universal reign over creation. Lord, will you lift our hearts to you and will you give us boldness and courage on campus to share that message with a world that needs to hear it? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for that, Matt. Um, we've finished a few minutes early. I was just wondering if anyone had a question maybe or two for Matt, if you wanted a minute or two to discuss with your uh, person next to you questions. It's a pretty heavy passage. So, yes, have a minute to discuss or less, 30 seconds maybe. That should be enough to at least get the juices flowing. Um, I feel like I should veto certain things in this passage that you can't ask me about because there are some things that are quite confusing here. You can't ask that. You've got to come on Thursday to ask it. And thankfully, it won't be me on the panel. It'll be Ben Smart, so um, he can deal with all the things that I can't. Um, does anyone have any questions about chapters 10, chapters 11, or any of the things that kind of came out of the talk? Tom Creek. Oh, dear. <laughs> 
Man talks about the great city, the called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. I assume that's Jerusalem. But why is it immediately called Sodom and Egypt? Yeah. Um, again, we're talking about layers and images. So the question, if you didn't hear it from Tom, is in verse 8 of chapter 11, there's a reference to the great city. That's the square where the dead bodies are left. Um, he has rightly assumed that it's Jerusalem. We can tell that from various things, like in verse 2, where it talks about uh, trampling in the holy city, um, and also by the reference clearly there, that the, the city where the Lord was crucified. But why is it called Sodom and Egypt? Um, simply because when you look at those two uh, countries and what they evoke for the Israelite mind, particularly in the Old Testament, you see Sodom, you see wickedness of the, the deepest kind, which is why God judged it supernaturally. Um, and you see Egypt, the country that had kept Israel in slavery for so long uh, and denied them freedom. And so what it's doing is it's just building this picture strangely about God's chosen city, Jerusalem, as the place of wickedness and slavery. Uh, and once you kind of move into other parts of the New Testament, you see that it's the Jewish people that crucify the Lord Jesus. It's his own people that he comes to and they don't receive him. In fact, they murder him. Uh, and so it's not surprising that that reversal is there. It's sort of a nod to saying the world, even God's own people, rejected Jesus when he came. So that's the kind of idea that's being evoked there. Good question. Any others? Caitlin, go for it. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't have a fully-fledged answer to that. What I, what I do know is that as you shrink it down, you go from three and a half years to three and a half days, right? Uh, and so what it seems to be suggesting is that for a small portion of that last days, the three and a half years, there will be a period of time where it looks like the church's power and witness will be broken. And this is where I'm a bit sketchy, uh, and you'll have a whole bunch of different people have a whole bunch of different opinions about what this means. But my suspicion... Uh, is that this is referring to a particular part at the end of the last days where things get particularly intense for the church. Now, that, that could be contentious. I think you can look at the, the way the imagery develops uh, in Revelation and kind of say, yeah, that sort of makes sense. Um, and so I'm inclined to think that that's the case. So that, in other words, right towards the end of history, there'll be this kind of period, very short compared to the whole of the thing, almost laughably short before they're raised, where the beast seems to prevail. But I'm quick to jump in at that point and, and say that doesn't mean that you can predict the return of Jesus because this is the danger, right? The danger is that we take this and we try to map it onto history. Um, and the reality is that if we kind of looked at Australia and looked at what's the level of persecution, oh, it's pretty low, so, you know, we must be way off Jesus' return. If I dropped you into Nigeria, you'd be like, whoa, whoa, Jesus has already come. This is horrible, right? Um, and so part of the issue is we don't have the perspective to be able to do that arithmetic, let alone the information in Revelation to do it. But I think that's what's going on with that, that three and a half days. I'm pretty sure that's time. The, the, the clock here is wrong, so I'll hand it back over to you. Thanks, guys.